This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. You know, we had to bring back Dr. Philip Williams. Uh, We had a great conversation last week. If you haven't listened to it, just listen to the episode from last week. Uh, We still have, we had a lot of questions for you when that episode ended. And uh, we had ended where you were talking about your call to ministry. I remember my call to ministry. Uh, That was around 2000. Uh, I remember a series of different nights where I was having dreams where I was preaching. (laughs) But the funny thing is I was preaching outside the church. (laughs) It's like I was by the steps of the church and the crowd is outside. And that happened like uh, three or or four times. Then I went to the pastor and I said, I've been having these consistent dreams where I'm preaching, but not inside the church, but outside. And he said, that is your call to ministry because I had the same thing in my, I had a dream where you were preaching. Right. So so I'm like, okay, what's the next step? He said, but you have to go to seminary. Joe, do you remember your call to ministry? My call to ministry came upon when I was, oh, I I always, I'm considered a second career uh, clergy person. And, you know, I'd worked a number of years and never found anything that was really tripped my trigger, as, I, as I've said before. <laughs> and I had gone back to church with my wife and two kids and got very involved in the church, and it just felt the right place to be. And I didn't have a vision. I had a feeling. And I went to the church, and I was involved in, very involved in the church, you know, variety of uh, positions, and went to a weekend, it was a three-weekend layperson training program. And it was during that lay training program that I just felt this overwhelming desire and need to be involved more in the church and to be uh, understand my faith in a whole lot different way. And that's what really led me, you know, into uh, thinking about, praying about, listening to myself, which is really, really listening to God. And, you know, that's been 30-some years ago. And, you know, I never thought I'd be in a position where I had a lifelong career, which I knew now was something that was very, it's been very powerful. And, and, and that's why hospice has been so important to me in my, in my development, in my faith, because now I, I can see God just everywhere. And it's through the lives and experiences and the stories of the families that I've been able to uh, walk with in their journey of life. Mm. And it's really amazing how we get these callings. And, and Dr. Phil, your narrative from our last episode was quite interesting. You had a dream. Uh, can you continue from there? 
Yeah, that that dream was um, the culmination of what I believe to have been the <laughs> inaudible but yet audible call of God on my life to preach the gospel and more so preach and teach it because as I had indicated, there was this wheel that I was seeing in my dream as an avid uh, watcher of the program Wheel of Fortune. I had watched that before going to bed that evening and, and in the middle of the night, all I could see was this wheel, but I couldn't discern the big dollar numbers that were on the Wheel of Fortune <laughs> wheel, but rather I saw writings. And, and as, the, as the dream came to an end, it, I was able to see do what Thus saith the Lord. Now I'm an old King James kind of person from yep. way back in the day. And so the archaic language uh, seemed to have been displayed on the screen, on the wheel. <laughs> and uh, when, when I came to, it was like, this is real. Uh, I had been running for a long, long time from preaching the gospel. Um, I had been running because I believe a lot had to do with the lack of education on what it meant to receive a call uh, to the gospel. And then that was the actual teaching. And I guess the idea that the call was to preach for most folks when that's not necessarily so. Well, it is not so that the ultimate call that comes upon us is to preach. But in that dream, as I came out and I had gone to church that next day and declared before our prayer group, that I had uh, accepted the call to preach the gospel and the spirit of the Lord was upon me and I share with them the direction that God was leading me. Uh, it was out of that that I began as a, a teacher and an educator and a researcher, begin to look at this thing of the calling and giftedness and abilities and talents, et cetera, uh, knowing that they were all separate and distinct Joe, you talked about um, having the feeling, and Sal, mm -hmm. you talked about the vision. Uh, the, the combination of those and other things are a part of the divine call that God places upon our lives. Uh, separate but distinct, individual in nature and event, but they all come to the point of a calling. And uh, I'm glad that I finally answered the call because <laughs> the visions were, were more frequent, the feelings were more frequent, uh, the task and the duties that came before me were more frequent, and not having a knowledge of what that was all about, I just did not answer. I did, did not respond and say, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing uh, until it just happened when I was called to the pastoral ministry, which led me to, to pastoral care and hospice care and uh, the involvement in all of that, there was a joy, there was a peace, there was a quiet. And I re re reflectively looked and said, you know, you're doing what God said do. Hence, that's the reason why you're more comfortable. That's the reason why you're not running Amen. anymore. Amen. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, this thing we call a calling. In honor of that call, you chose to go to Liberty to start your theological training. How was it? Liberty was a challenge. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Liberty, Liberty was a great school, yet it was a challenge because, uh, and this is a, a borderline statement, it had a, a, a feel of politics at one stage, and then it had a, um, 
an indicator of another's theology. But in all of that, the professors were off the chart awesome in sticking to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what they taught. They, they kept that narrow road. They didn't stray into politics. They didn't stray into the theology of another. They stayed straightly with the word of God. <laughs> and it was interesting. If you fail the test, they pray for you. <laughs> but, but, but failure was possible. <laughs> but you had to redo the course, I guess, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was long, you know. But I, I thank God that I never did, but I didn't always do uh, the grade that I thought I should have received. Uh, but they prayed about that, and we moved on. But liberty was was a journey. Um, liberty was great for me in another way, in that I was a special agent uh, at the time. And so when I could not go on campus, Liberty provided for me the external study, the remote oh, nice. study where I would do online. This is before we got into the COVID online uh, yeah. things. Yeah, this is 1971, 72, 73, 74, and 5. Uh, Liberty offered me the opportunity to do distance learning, they called it. And we actually had a um, professor that was online that would ask and answer all of the questions that we needed. Uh, we were assigned proctors within our community. And out of that, that just gave a well-rounded view of what Liberty was trying to do to promote the gospel and help some of us who were experiencing this call to get clarity. So did you become a pastor right away after that? Uh, not right away, because again, I was an, an agent back in town uh, for certain amounts of time, um, then back to, to campus. I, um, As a matter of fact, in my second or third year, I was in pastoral ministry um, in what we call parish pastor at that particular mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And just, bef- just before that, I worked in a local church as one of the ministry leaders, but not in the pastoral. Uh, it was a Sunday morning when things were not going right at the church where I was serving in ministry. I thought I would look out to find another place. And so I drove down the street, and it was a church that had huge flag, big church flag and U.S. flag. Uh, out front, and I thought, this might be a place to go. And so I stopped off at uh, Christian Fellowship Church, and that changed my total life. Uh, Mm. Dr. James Allman was the pastor there. Uh, This was a um, pretty strong Eurocentric background church in Virginia, and this is the mid-80s, and there were not too many African-Americans in the leadership in the church uh, but uh, Pastor Allman invited me in as uh, I had signed the visitor's card. He invited me into a, his office on a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, as he was sharing with me, he began to weep and said, I, I sense there's something different about you, my friend. I, I, I just don't know what this is, this is. He says, but I'm trying to move forward in an aspect of ministry. And I'd like to talk to you about that. And we hadn't talked about anything because I didn't know him pretty much. And so we sat and we dialogued. And he says, well, you know, if if you're in town long enough, I'd like to work with you and, and let you meet my staff, et cetera, et cetera. 
ultimately, I became the executive pastor of the Christian Fellowship Church. 1,022 families were members of that church at that particular time. And I, I think it may have been about a tenth of a percent African-American that were in that church. This is the Washington, D.C. suburbs. We had some redskins and some bullets that were a part of the church. Uh, I ultimately established an evening worship service that they called, quote, the gospel service. And it uh, just began to explode and things began to happen in the growth of that church uh, in a miraculous way. And healing happened. Uh, one of the el elders of the church, elderly ladies of the church, uh, did not desire for me to, quote, minister to her uh, because of my ethnicity. And that was expressed. And um, she, several months later, was on her dying bed. And she said to her daughter, I'd like to have Pastor Phil to come and minister to me. And Pastor Phil, I want to do my final arrangements, my homegoing service. Uh, and in that, ministering to that lady in her hospice care time was one of those things that really locked me in again to hospice care and taking care of those that were transitioning. And so in my call, there were a number of places that were confirmation places. Uh, aside from the Liberty University, but I was able to continue my studies at Liberty and graduate out of that while I was at this particular church. Well, I find it sometimes difficult to talk to the local parish pastor about end-of-life issues, and especially uh, ministering to families under these circumstances. Uh, it seems like there was an easy transition for you, or at least a, a very... Uh, a powerful transition for you to go and and do both of those because they're they are a little different, you know, parish versus hospice. Yes, yes, and and I think it's relationships that's the big difference. Yep. That pastor wants his congregation; he wants them around for 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 he the eternity. Yep. And therefore, there is that relationship that they've established, one that they don't see a terminal with their their parishioners. Uh, someone like myself who comes in. Now, here's another thing. We have to be sure of our calling, which made that easier for me. Uh, if I were not well sure said. of my, yeah, if I were not sure of my calling, I would have still been preaching and yep. teaching as opposed to pastoral caregiving. And so I, I knew that this was without a shadow of a doubt, my purpose to be at the bedside of this little lady that was dying. Uh, it didn't make any difference, race, creed, or color, national, nationality, nope. or origin. This was this was a dying soul who was on her way to meet her master, and it was my purpose, my divinely appointed purpose and time to be there to help her in her transition. So I think that's with that host pastor. Some some persons who are in pastoral positions are really not caregivers. Uh, I had one pastor, and of course, I indicate in my bio sketch that I am a ch church starter, and I started 26 churches in the state of Texas. Uh, I had one pastor of those uh, in one of those churches who had difficulty visiting persons in the hospital. He, mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. just not something that he could do. Mm -hmm. And so I say that to say not every pastor has that caregiving component. Not every pastor is an administrator in their church. Uh, and so there, there comes, again, the distinctiveness of, of calling and giftedness. Uh, there, are, there are some of us who have the call and the giftedness to do. And so um, 
it's important for us to know and be very sure who we are when we start talking about being in hospice, because hospice will bring you front and center with your mortality each and every day. Amen. That's right. So you were working as an executive pastor in this big church. You were mm -hmm. still working as a U.S. agent. Mm -hmm. And then you were a full-time student at Liberty. How did you balance all this stuff? <laughs> That's a good good question, Sal. Um, <laughs> because because, because once, I finished, once I finished that, not only did I have that, I, you, you, I, I, had a, I did a dual master's. My master's was in religion, uh, Christian family counseling likewise. So when I culminated that, I went straight to Howard University to begin my doctorate degree, driving from Northern Virginia into the city of Washington, DC. How did I do that? I thank God for three by five cards. <laughs> some, of the, some, of the kids, some of the kids today don't know what they are, but we did not have the laptops and all of that good stuff. And so three by five cards in my left shirt pocket made life easy. I would make copious notes of what I was to do during the course of the day. I opted not to use but one calendar and that calendar was self-designed on my three by five cards. I learned early, if you have two calendars, you can make two big mistake, mistakes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so I, I'm a time manager. I, I mean, I've always been a time manager since a kid. And so as a time manager, I ordered my steps, one, according to the Lord's dictation to my, to my life, but then two, according to the needs of the day. And I arranged according to that for my physical fitness and otherwise. But uh, it was not always easy, but time management was the key, absolute key. Before we came together here this morning, uh, Saul was talking about he has time for nothing. I mean, he just is, <laughs> and, and, and here he's asking this question about how you do it. I'm like, yep, my brother here's looking for help. He needs some help. I'll tell you that right now. Let me ask you a question. You, you, you speak of this in the church. Let's turn it, turn it around a little bit to look at the whole situation in hospice itself and hospice chaplaincy. Uh, there have to, I know there are individuals in this ministry that probably should not be participating. Yes. How do you identify that? I mean, you can see that real easy in the church, because I've been in the church setting for, I was in the church setting for 20 years, and I know I see everything that you're talking about and how churches respond to that, and how pastors have responded about that with their fear of losing their flock. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you see that happening in, in chaplaincy, okay. in hospice okay. chaplaincy? I'm with you. Okay. Now, again, uh, in the in my introduction, it was conveyed that I am currently a member of an organization of the federal government, trying not to cross any boundaries in the dialogue. Yes. And 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 in that, I am the national certifier for hospice and palliative care specialty. And so one of the things that I am tasked to do is to make sure that the person who gets a certification for hospice chaplaincy is thoroughly prepared for that. 
So therefore, there is a screening process that undergoes. But I can't screen across the country. But what I can do is make sure that their education, that their learning is of a, an equivalency that it masters in the area of hospice and palliative care. Now, on the local setting, I can have more influence. And so on the local setting, in regards to your question, Joe, one of the first things that I look at is the assumption of responsibility. If in the event that this person declares that they are a hospice chaplain, I look at how they assume responsibility. If there is no joy, if there's no happiness, if there's no <laughs> excitement, no immediacy on the forefront to go to the bedside of one who is in hospice care, I'm questioning whether or not that person is to be in that arena. Then on the other side is the assumption of task. Um, is it a burden? And there, of course, are two types of burdens that are recorded in the scripture. I think this is the baros. This is the one that is, has a connection with the to do and can do and will do. And so this thing that we carry there, we're excited to do it. That's right. So, and, and so you look at the responsibility and the assumption of task on the local scene and you weed from there because you can see it. I mean, it's, it's, it's vivid. It's not anything. And, and those of us who see it are called. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we, we have all of us who um, are Christians and not everybody in, in this listening audience is probably a Christian, but as far as from the Christian perspective, all of us have an ability to discern. But there are those of us who have the spiritual gift of discernment. And I think that the hospice chaplain has the spiritual gift of discernment above and beyond for himself, for those that he's giving care to, and for those who are their family members. The hospice chaplain in the room of the dying is like an orchestra conductor. He is in tune with every person, every spirit in that room in order to bring closure and a smooth transition. Hence, I think when we don't sense that there are persons in the room that can do that, that are there, that have assumed responsibility and the assumption of task, we can begin the weeding process. Uh, we don't have to be negative in that, but what we do is we just, we move in a, in a fashion that is slow and methodical, methodical and caregiving. And that's who we are. We're caregivers, even to uh, those mm -hmm. among us. Mm -hmm. Well said. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with uh, Dr. Phil. Uh, just tell us about your journey to hospice. I know you started visiting the dying at the age of five, and you've been <laughs> doing it all over your life. But hospice, how did your journey to hospice begin? My journey to hospice came out of the hospice room. Uh, 
when my mother transitioned under hospice care, it was no doubt in my mind that that's what I would be doing for the rest of my life. Now, prior to that, of course, I was in pastoral ministry, pastoral pastoring in the church, church growth development, the whole nine yards. And as a pastor in the local church on staff, I was doing hospice care, but solely, solely to hospice only began at my, after my mother's death, um, knowing that that was her desire, but not only was it her desire, it was God's call that was experienced in the middle of my caregiving on a number of instances, the number of family members that I had to transition prior to my mother's death and hers being the culminating and the most uh, defining. I, I knew that all I, the only thing I could do was accept the call. Now, interestingly, after having accepted that call, I was still in the in church, doing church administration and do, doing church planting. And so you just don't jump up and go into a hospice <laughs> unit <laughs> or a hospital and do hospice care. You just, that doesn't happen. You have to, number one, have the credentialing and you got to have the position. Uh, I sought all over Texas for the position and I would get rejected because I didn't have what they call CPE, yep. <laughs> clinical pastoral That's right. education. That's right. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have CPE. And I'm thinking, okay, I've been in pastoral ministry since 1979. And you're telling me that I don't have what it takes to be a chaplain. They said, that's what we're saying. Now, not only. <laughs> you had us right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Lord. So, so I didn't have the particulars to do that. And so I found out how to go about doing that. And I got signed up for a hospice, uh, excuse me, not hospice, but CPE within the hospital to get my year of mm -hmm. uh, CPE training. But I got that not in my local area. This is how I know this thing was a calling on my life. Uh, I'm sitting in my home in Texas, and I'm exhausting my resources through calls around Texas. And so I figured I would expand out Missouri, Arkansas, uh, Tennessee. I found an advertisement in Arkansas and Little Rock regarding the desire for a hospice chaplain. And I called them. And they said, sorry, you don't have CPE. But what we have is a, a residency spot that's opening up within the next several months. We'll put you on the list, but we're strongly believing that the young lady who's gone, who's applied to this is going to come and get it. Now, the residency, of course, as you know, would give me my CPE and put me in the position for uh, chaplaincy. Well, I uh, was on my way to Missouri for a weekend vacation when I received a call from the hospice chaplaincy director and CPE educator in Little Rock who says, listen, the young lady who was supposed to take the job does not want to come. You have it available to you if you want to come and receive your CPE training. I thought, this is off the chart. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and so I said to him, I'm on my way on vacation to Missouri. I'm going to pass by Little Rock to uh, drop in and visit with you. He says, come by and we'll interview you at that time. He interviewed me when I dropped through Little Rock. 
I went on my vacation to uh, Missouri. I get a call two days later. This Southern gentleman says to me, uh, Dr. Phil, um, we have decided that you are suitable for the CPE <laughs> training. But here is the situation. You have to report to Didi on next Monday. I'm thinking, wait a minute, I live in Texas. And you're telling me I've got to be in Little Rock next week in order to get this. My excitement was off the chart. Now, I'm a logical person. I'm a well-established business person. <laughs> I came back to San Antonio. I put my house up for sale. I put my car up for sale. I, I, at that time, I was driving a, be nice to me, an S500 Mercedes. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Say no I more. Put, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I put it up to sale and watch this. I bought a Chevy HHR. <laughs> I have one of those. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loaded that Chevy HHR up, called the surrounding area of the hospital for a one of those week stay uh, live-in places to go and rent for a week until I found a, an apartment in order that I could get that job. I was there for one year. I acquired my CPE uh, uh, residency and I received all four units. At that point in time, I was qualified mm -hmm. to become a hospice chaplain. I didn't have a job, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I was qualified and watch this, I waited. I waited for the Lord to call me to a position. Five months later, the Lord called me to a remote area in Texas that was extremely rural to a hospice nursing care. And at that juncture, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that all this that had been done, all the steps that had been taken were ordered by the Lord. That's my entry into hospice. Powerful stuff, John. We were talking before about, oh, the word again is uh, the gift of you were we were talking earlier about it there, Phil. Giftedness, yeah. Yeah, your giftedness for the ministry of this hospice ministry. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, you were it, it struck a chord with me because recently, this past week, I had a a patient of mine who had been I met first when I was uh, in a pastoral pastoral situation where she came to the church I was at with her husband. And then eventually her health deteriorated to the point that she needed to be in a hospice. And because of our relationship, she came on to our hospice program. So that was been, I've, I've known this lady and this husband for six, probably six, seven years. And this past uh, Wednesday, she died. But, you know, you, you started talking about your, your, your understanding of why it is you do what you do. And yes. And it became very apparent to me, you know, I, I always think about my call. I mean, I do think about it often. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I came away from this whole experience because uh, as she was getting near the end of life, they called me instead of the nurse. Yeah. And I mean, that's the first time for me, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And on all the years that I've been doing this, uh, this hospice ministry, 
And, you know, I would go there and I'd indicate, well, yeah, you better call the nurse. You know, you better mm -hmm. have her come over here and check out what's going on, how she's deteriorating and, and mm -hmm. all of this. Mm -hmm. And then the next day calls me again and says, I think, uh, I think this is the last of it. And I said, okay, I'll be right over, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that urgency that you feel, you know, yeah. if you, when you, like you say, when you're really called to this ministry, yeah. that you have to be there. And that was my feeling and the entire time. I mean, there was no question. And then the social worker who we worked together very closely with this patient and, and husband, uh, she says, oh, you're really doing hospice work now. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a wonderful observation. And I get chills from that because it feels yeah. like, I mean, yeah. I've been trying to do this the whole time I've been doing my ministry and it's nice to be affirmed. Let's right, put it that right, way. Right. Right, and that you've right. done it that way. And then to hear you talk about it affirms my, and yeah. I, I would hope that when anybody who's listening to this program, that they have those experiences as well. And it would be great to have them kind of respond to us to know who they are. And uh, uh, because, you know, it, it, this is, this is tough work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, 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 that is one very solid summary that you give of, identifying our call. One of the things that I target in my assessment process is other individuals in your community, those who know you, those who you are around, when others see in you certain things, certain attributes, uh, certain gifts and giftedness, they ought to be able to see that call that's upon your life and yeah. help you in the confirmation process. Yeah. And, and far too often, we denounce what others say, but in the dying hour, if, if you find a nurse, a social worker, or a doctor that calls you instead of one of their colleagues, it says to us that they see a divine presence upon your life. Amen. That and not only is confirmation, but affirmation of what you do and, and yep. the calling that God has placed on your life. And, and, and I think that in what you've described with this five and a half year old time period, a uh, five and a half year time period that you had known this individual, um, at this particular juncture, it's not only her mortality, but your mortality that you are facing. And that mm -hmm. when you can do this thing of caregiving in the midst of recognizing your own and walking one through their process, it's a confirmation by itself. That's been an absolute wonderful observation you just brought because that's exactly what I've been experiencing mm -hmm. as I think about that because it, it's sometimes scary. Yeah, 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 and yeah. It, that's, and it, for us to say that it is not says that we are liar because what one thing that's for sure, we are still human. <laughs> we, we are still mere, mere mortals. <laughs> Working our way to immortality. <laughs> yes. Amen. Amen. So what have you found challenging in hospice ministry and rewarding? The, the, the challenge is, uh, for me, on a personal note, uh, maintaining good health and constant awareness of who I am and whose I am in the midst of this. Now, what do I mean by that? When, I, when someone says to me, how can I pray for you? Pray that I have great health because it is through my health and stability of healthiness that I'm able to do what I do. And I try to do a lot, as you probably I can tell. 
And, and, and so I, I, I pray for that. And then on the other side of that, there again is that issue of mortality and immortality. Sometimes we have injuries in our own bodies. I was set up on an operation in Biloxi, Mississippi when I was a special agent. Um, and the, the setup was for other agents, but I ended up being the person who was the victim of it. This is the inside of a Dodge van. Hmm. On one side, if you could find the steering wheel, I was the driver of this. Yeah, I was tossed over the passenger side, and at that point of impact, there I lay. My neck um, severely injured, and I was supposed to have had surgery in 1980, and I have refused the surgery on that. I say that to say that there are sometimes our mortality we face, even when we're before others. And that, at times, is a little bit of a battle. It's a battle. Knowing that, I, I mean, I could be out at any time. But the bottom line is, I am doing what God has said do. And that's excitement. And so, so what are the, the, the pros and the benefits of what I do? What are the things I'm gaining from this? I'm gaining joy every day of serving in the capacity of my call, my God-given call. And every time that I'm in the room, that one takes their breath, I realize I've been in the room with God. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> right. Because that dying place in which they're in, in that room at that particular time, this is not only God's time, but God is present in the room. Hmm. Always. Hmm. Absolutely. Powerful words, man. And that's the yeah. truth. So what are your final thoughts to the hospice chaplains, uh, even those that are thinking about becoming hospice chaplains listening to this episode now? I, my final thought has to do again with, I'm so steeped on calling. Get to know your call. Um, and you can't just get it just sitting still. You have to <laughs> apply yourself. Apply yourself to the task and assume and accept responsibility. If you step in the fire and the fire burns, it's not for you. Get out. <laughs> no, well but, said. No, yeah, no truer words than that. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Thank you yeah, very much. Folks, <laughs> there were some folks in the furnace and the <laughs> fire didn't burn. That's right. <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. you preach it, brother. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank right. you. Thank you, guys. Mm, blessings. Take care. Yeah. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting Studio in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.